Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Nikki Hilton Rothschild. I would say my proudest moment was when I showed at Bryant Park in New York Fashion Week and took that final bow because I grew up going to, you know, some of my favorite designers in the world, you know, going to Vera Wang and Oscar de la Renta and to be at the end of that runway doing that final bow where so many of my mentors have done it. That was a really special, proud moment for me. Ellen Davis. When we created our first gala five years ago and people actually showed up, we made over a million dollars that night when a whole bunch of people said we wouldn't be able to do it. And we said, no, we think we can. We've got this, we represent this industry that really gives back and believes in the workforce and we're going to try. And we tried and that I remember that night sitting there being like, you know, it's like Sally Fields at the Oscars where you're like, oh my gosh, they really like me. Um, there's incredible validation in your work when you work really hard for something and you believe really strongly in it and, and it's supported, whether that's financially or in other ways. That has been my proudest moment. Rebecca Minkoff. As scared as we were to, again, talk to our consumer, use social media, use technology in our interactive stores. I think those were all things that we aimed to just show our consumer and show the industry that you can use technology to ease a woman's pain points, um, not for gimmicky reasons, but just use it for the better to transform a dressing room experience, um, you know, and, and really start talking to her about how technology can evolve the shopping experience for the good. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Welcome back. Glad to have you people just tuning in for the first time. And those of you who are longtime listeners, thank you so much for subscribing, for passing it on, and for listening over and over again and putting up with me. I'm very, very grateful. I'm thankful for all your support, and I really appreciate it. And I'm really excited about today's episode with three of the most incredible women that I've ever met in 
this industry, the retail industry, or any industry. And I'm talking about Rebecca Minkoff, Ellen Davis, and Nikki Hilton Rothschild. Not necessarily in that order. In any order. Just so great. I was in New York at the Jacob Javits Center at the National Retail Federation convention and was able to interview them amongst 40,000 registered guests for this convention, the largest of its kind in the world. And all of my guests on this special, special edition of Industry Standard were very unique and special. And before I tell you a little bit about them, I want to let you know that if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter or BarryKatz.com. And I will be glad to get back to you. And before I bring on these three guests, I want to let you know what it is about them that's the common thread, what it is about them that I noticed that really, really was unique and special. And one of the things I realized about them all is they all weren't afraid to identify the path that they wanted to be on and then to take jobs that were probably the lowest of the low at each company they started at just to get a feel for what it was about, how to learn about the profession, and how to figure out how to be the best representation of themselves within the industry and where they wanted to work. That's how Ellen Davis started at NRF, the National Retail Federation, almost 20 years ago in a low position at the company she worked her way up. She worked hard. She had the loyalty to the company. They saw it. She loved it there. She was able to deal with the ups and downs and how things were and the navigation of different people coming in and out. Yet she was able to stay because of her great work and how she mixed well with others. And that's a big reason why she's at the head of the company right now. Rebecca Minkoff started again in an affiliation with a great designer, got in there, worked hard for him. In her spare time, she came up with her own designs. She worked at it. She put it together. She finally had the guts to show the person she worked with who believed that she was special and encouraged her to go off on her own and do what she had to do and she kicked ass when she did it. And lastly, Nikki Hilton Rothschild. I don't think it's insulting to say that Nikki grew up in an atmosphere where there was a lot of financial freedom. There was a lot of comfortability. And instead of just riding that comfortability, one of the first things she did was take an internship at a company that was involved in fashion and that really blew me away because i think to myself if i were somebody who grew up in the hilton family would i be taking an internship somewhere would i be working for free somewhere but she cared 
She knew she wanted to forge her own path. She didn't want to have to rely on her parents. She wanted to do it on her own, worked hard, created great work, and made it happen. I can guarantee you, if you follow the kind of path that the three of these women have followed, you'll have the possibility of the kind of entrepreneurial career that Ellen Davis, Nikki Hilton Rothschild, and Rebecca Minkoff have. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Nikki Hilton Rothschild. Tell me how your business has been influenced by social media and go into the details of real versus fake followers and macro, micro, <laughs> and nano influencers and how that has affected your world and what you're doing now and for the future. I think having a social media presence is very important for a brand. As we know, Gen X is addicted to social media. They look at it as a social activity. It's like going to lunch or coffee and sitting on our phones, checking Facebook, Instagram, shopping. So I, I definitely recommend anyone starting out to have a presence on there. And I also think it's so cool that you can communicate with people via social media. I mean, you can direct message your favorite celebrity or style star and they can respond to you. You know, most of them don't, but some of them do. And I think it's a great way for young designers to get their products in people's hands. All it takes is a direct message. I recently had this cool... Um, young New York designer sent me a DM of this faux leopard coat because she knows I don't wear real fur and I like faux fur and she sent me a picture of it and she says hey I, I would love to send this to you and I responded oh absolutely yes please do so she sent it to me and I've worn it to a few events and then my sister saw it she's like hey where did you get that I want that so now I think she's also sending my sister one. And I know that this can be costly for some brands, but I think you sort of have to look at it as, you know, free PR. And sometimes you got to spend money to make money. And it's a, it's a, it's, yeah, great free PR. Tell me how relationships have helped you get to where you are within the fashion business and who do you look at the relationships that you say have helped define how you are shaping your business um i have a lot of friends in the industry whether sales girls um retailers people in pr and i think that we all help each other 
Um, and I think it's all about that give and take. When I have a new product line, I'll definitely go to even some of my favorite stores and I have no relationship with them and give them a line sheet and say, check it out. Your proudest moment in this business? I would say my proudest moment was when I showed at Bryant Park in New York Fashion Week and took that final bow because I grew up going to, you know, some of the, my favorite designers in the world, you know, going to Vera Wang and Oscar de la Renta and to be at the end of that runway doing that final bow where so many of my mentors have done it. That was a really special, proud moment for me. Your biggest disappointment in this business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. My biggest disappointment. Um, it's always hard when a certain retailer doesn't get behind you and support you. Um, but, you know, you got to pick yourself up and go on to the next one. Because in this industry, I don't know, a lot of, they're not honest and everyone yeses you and yeses you to your face. But at the end of the day, you know, so that can be disappointing, a little deflating at times. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up, going into their parents' closet and playing dress up and dreaming about what it's like to be in that particular profession and figuring out a way to navigate through all the ups and downs and have the kind of extraordinary, respectful career that you have? Like I said, start from the bottom up. Everybody starts somewhere, you know, find that passion and that interest and try uh, interns. I always say that intern, intern, intern. Um, you know, what's great is a lot of these internships are paid today, but really getting in there, learning the ropes of that business and preparing yourself to enter it in a professional field. You blew me away today. Thank you so much for Thank doing this. Thank you for having me. Ellen Davis. I live in Malibu, and I went to the Levi store in Malibu, and I got a pair of pants there, a Japanese Levi pants, and it was $250 jeans. And I thought as I'm signing the check, is this pair of pants $250 in Times Square? Is this pair $250 in Peoria, Illinois? Hey, I grew up near Peoria, Illinois. <clears throat> We've seen a lot more transparency come out in pricing because of access to information. You will see prices vary by market, which makes sense because your uh, staffing costs might be different by market. Your real estate costs certainly will be different. I'm sure that the real estate, you know, the lease in Times Square is way different than a lease in Peoria, Illinois, right? So, okay, maybe I can justify that, but I'm not going to be in both places. So, however... I, when I very first started and the internet became a thing in 2004, 2005, there were two things that was, were happening that retailers just really couldn't get their heads around. The first one was online reviews. Oh my gosh, they hated them because that is access to information the customer hadn't had before. And so there was this huge discussion of, gosh, should we let, should we put reviews on our website? I mean, I'm not really sure if we should 
give customers the ability to rate something a one, that's terrible. And today, not only do customers look for reviews on a website, but retailers actually look at the reviews too and make decisions based on a product assortment or a change they might need to make to a product. So that was one, and that, that is big from a transparency standpoint. The other big thing was that when retailers first started selling online, it was it was almost status quo to have prices be different in your store and on your website. And that was crazy to a lot of people where it's like, wait, I don't understand. You're the, aren't you the same company? Why are you selling me, you know, why are you selling, I'm giving, going to give an example, this piece of jewelry on your website for $250, but in your store it's $320. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and so you, you started to see this stripping away of the control that retailers have had for a long time to have customers be able to have access to more information as it relates to pricing and also access to more information about what other people think. And that has required the industry to adapt really quickly. Uh, and it's led to much better customer experiences, but it's been quite a road. All right. I want to go way, 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 way back. Okay. Take me back where you grew up near Peoria, Illinois. What was the socioeconomic dynamic of your family, your brothers and sisters? How was that relationship? And what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? Oh, man. <clears throat> I grew up on a farm in Galesburg, Illinois, which is between Peoria and the Quad Cities. Uh, I had a. Could you tell our audience what the Quad Cities are again? Sure, the Quad Cities. Oh, my gosh. Am I going to remember? Moline, Davenport, <laughs> Rock Island. And maybe Bettendorf, but don't hold me to the fourth one. I won't. Okay, good. Um, so I grew up, you know, in a small town of about 30,000 people out in the country. My dad's a farmer. My mom stayed home with us when we were kids, but then went back to school and uh, became a teacher when I was in junior high. Um, so it was, you know, pretty like Norman Rockwell. We didn't have any money. Um, the farm crisis in the 80s was really devastating for my family. I'm the oldest of four kids. And... You know, we had a lot of hand-me-downs and a lot of, you know, small dinners, and we made it work, and um, they ended up getting, you know, coming back on, on the other side of that. <clears throat> but it, you know, taught me just a tremendous amount about um, a strong family structure uh, and, you know, creativity. I've always been uh, somebody who loves to write, and, you know, you're growing up in the middle of nowhere with no cable TV and certainly no iPhone and lots of other things that kids today have and you get really creative and uh, I wrote a lot I read a lot and uh, that was always kind of my outlet for the rest of the world um, I went to college and majored in communications after some soul-searching if you will and you know really used that kind of love of, of writing to get myself into communications and PR but also what I did because I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of money is that money was always really important to me. Not making it necessarily, but having enough of it. Having enough of it to be able to buy what I wanted. Um, and I remember when I was a kid, it was, you know, my very first job was detasseling corn. And my, you know, my dad, we went and opened my first checking account and he made me take my first paycheck for three weeks of work, which was like 360 bucks. And he made me save a hundred dollars of it and, you know, give, 10% to church and all those other things and and having the money left over to spend on whatever I wanted was a really powerful moment 
I bought an electric keyboard. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that for me was, was the beginning of this journey of just working a lot and working all the time. So from detasseling corn, oh my gosh, I just wanted a job with air conditioning. And that's how I ended up in retail. Quite frankly, I worked at a discount store in my hometown. I loved it. I loved every single thing about it. I mostly worked the cash register and, and after a couple months, I think they had a policy. You had to be 16 to work the front, which was customer service. So when I turned 16, I got promoted to customer service desk. And I really enjoyed talking to people, understanding what they were buying, seeing them come back. Um, it was a great experience. And, and my other retail experiences have been the same. I just think it's fascinating. Uh, and that's, you know, so when I graduated from college and I ended up with a communication degree, you know, PR is interesting if you like what you're doing PR for, but man, it's terrible if you just think it's boring. And I really lucked into this job where I had a background in PR, but I had this love of retail, not really of shopping. I like the experience of shopping. Okay. But I'm not like the world's biggest shopper, but I think it's fascinating to think about how other people shop. And that's how I ended up in 2002 in media relations for NRF. It was this. But how did you get the gig? Tell us about the interview. Oh, man, everything is, is you know, life's about your network, you know? So. But you didn't have a network. You grew up on a farm. Well, that's true. So here's how I, here's how I built the network. Here's, here's my piece of luck. I moved to St. Louis after graduation. I didn't know anybody. Um, worked at an advertising and marketing agency. Didn't really like it. Uh, had a boyfriend at the time and we broke up and I did the most risky thing I've ever done in my life. I quit my job and I went on tour with Better Homes and Gardens magazine and Barbie. And I was in charge of the Barbie section. We worked 20 cities in 20 weeks, drove three straight trucks and a van all around the country. We drove 23,000 miles in six months. And I got to see all of the U.S. I also got to pay off all my student loans while I was doing it, which was amazing. And I loved Washington, D.C. I really did. Also, while I was in D.C., I connected with somebody who my uncle had been trying to set me up with when I was in high school that never would have worked then, but he happened to be out in D.C. going to grad school and working. Um, so I connected with him, and um, we stayed in touch. When my tour ended, we started dating, and I ended up um, going out to visit him one weekend while I was still in St. Louis, and um, everything in D.C., it feels like happens at a bar or a softball game. And at the softball game, um, I met a guy who was the head of communications for NRF. And two weeks later, his, his media relations person gave notice. Um, and he said, would you be interested in applying? You want to try? And I was like, okay. Um, this sounds like my perfect job on paper. You know, it's media, PR, and shopping. Like who, who doesn't love that when you're 22, 23 years old? Um, so that wasn't... I'm not going to say it was an easy in. It was an easy into the interview. Um, but our CEO at the time, who I greatly respect and admire, was a tough interview. And she, you know, you'd get all the way through the process and you'd get to the end and she'd be like, nope, nope, not happening. Nope. And you'd have to start from the beginning. And I really connected with her at that time. Uh, so maybe I was one of the lucky ones. But um you know, she's the one who kind of said yes on that first chance for me and validated that maybe he was making, the, you know, the guy who hired me was making the right decision after all. Um, but that's that's how I ended up there. And then since then, it's just been these, you know, I've been there a long time, but 
I feel like my job kind of reinvents itself, much like the industry does every couple of years. And so that's also been this interesting transformation where you're not doing, I'm not doing anything, literally anything the same that I was doing in 2002. And quite frankly, the retail industry probably isn't either. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey, everybody. I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment, and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. And I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates, and I'm talking about the Air Doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the Air Doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. One, Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm okay. going to mention some things. You tell me what comes to mind. Oh, man. All right. Educating retailers how to evolve. I mean, that's what the big show is. 
it's helping retailers understand what options they have to better connect with their customers and and hopefully increase their sales in the process. Products since 2002 that you've seen go out of business mm. and others come in that replace them. Sure. Okay. Well, when I started, we had Circuit City. We had Borders. Uh, you know, it's interesting. It will be interesting to see what the future looks like for Sears, but Sears was doing all right in 2002. What's replaced them? I mean, gosh, you know, you think about how people shop now. Best Buy was an interesting one. In 2002, they were doing okay. Then they tanked for a while, and man, they're back, and they're hot, and good for them. But Amazon wasn't really around in in uh, 2002. I, I was listening to something the other day that was a um, it was a teaser question to figure out, what was your first purchase you ever made on Amazon? So sometime tonight, go into your go into your Amazon app and figure out. My mind was like something ridiculous. It was like something for my house. It wasn't even a book, which you'd think way back in the day would be your first purchase on Amazon. Um, so, you know, Amazon, Warby Parker, Rent the Runway, these are all cool new business concepts that didn't exist really when I started. Uh, and they've been fun to watch. It's been fun to watch that evolve. Part B, products that were around in 2002 and are irrelevant today. Oh, my gosh. So electronics. I mean, you look at the transformation that's happened in electronics, right? The MP3 player, the the digital, the point-and-shoot digital camera. You know, now, now you can accomplish all that stuff on one thing called an iPhone, which came about mm, six or seven years after I started at NRF. The BlackBerry. I mean, I, we talked, you know, when we... In 2002, when I started, I was given a BlackBerry with my email on it. You know, it's funny. Every network president that I've ever interviewed owns a BlackBerry. Still. Yes. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Um, it used to be a big thing in D.C., too, and the federal government loosened up a little bit. And now they're not required. They can have other options. But, um, you know, I feel like electronics has really been a category that's been very disrupted with the way that technology has changed. I mean... Look at the price of a big screen to TV today versus in 2002. Um, it's it's amazing. So that's been really fun to watch. I mean, some of the basics, apparel, shoes, you see fashion go back and forth. You see brands that are hotter than, than the others. But I wouldn't say that there's been, like, revolutionary change there. Um, this is the thing. The one product I see in retail that was destroyed and went out of business during your tenure. Okay, tell me. The cash register. Well, that there are... Hey, if you walk this expo floor, you're going to see some POS systems, but they're very, very different than they used to be. Um, both with people shopping online and also, you know, the ability to wander around the store and follow the customer and let them pay from a tablet with Square or another payment option. Um, it's very different um, than it used to be. And it's really interesting for companies as well. Automobiles in the mall. Mm -hmm. I think about the mall that near where I grew up, which was a really hot place to go in the 1980s. There were always there was an, always an, an automobile in the mall. Um, not so much anymore. Malls have changed. But I mean, you go to the mall and Tesla has a store. Well, in the that mall. is true. Okay, see, I'm thinking of like the big display areas. Yes, it's it's fascinating. I mean, you you again. In many cases, you're seeing a store is a showroom. You're going in and you might see, you know, lots of things that you can, you know, 
Tesla is a good example. You're not going to, yeah, you might buy one right there, but you're not probably going to drive it home. That's okay. Maybe you, you just want the experience. Maybe you just want to be able to see it and, and try it out and think about it. Thrift and consignment stores. Mm -hmm. Boy, that was an area during the recession when I was at NRF that was really hot. And still is. Uh, in some cases, you know, you've got Goodwill is probably the biggest. But you've also seen an online competitor pop up called ThreadUp, T-H-R-E-D-U-P, where you can mail in your hand-me-down stuff, mostly consignment. I mean, you know, and they look through it and, and they offer you a certain amount of money for it. And there you go. So, you know, this battery has not been disrupted as much as others. This gets back to the conversation we were having earlier, though, about consumption, which is we have so much more stuff than we used to. And as a result, that trickle-down effect, especially with the life-changing magic of tidying up and all these other New Year's resolutions folks have, um, Goodwill and other thrift and consignment stores are bursting at the seams. And, and they really do provide an incredibly valuable service to lots of people in this country um, that I don't think, you know, that I think we shouldn't minimize um, because it's, you know, there are a lot of people who can't pay full price for things and it's, it is a much better alternative than putting something in a landfill or leaving it in your closet, leaving it in your closet forever. Rise up training. Mm. This is, you know, this is, I've got two kids of my own, but this feels like my third. Um, we launched a program two years ago called Rise Up which was created because we're in this interesting environment where we've got, you know, I mentioned before, retailers, the world's the, the largest private sector employer in the U.S. On average, our industry has about 500,000 open positions at one time. We're also in this interesting part as a country where unemployment is low, so it can be hard for retailers to find those 500,000 people. But conversely, you still have millions of people who can't find employment. Why not? How is it possible that when unemployment is low and we have 500,000 open positions in our country that we still have people that are looking for work who can't find jobs? And that's where Rise Up came from, which is this idea of how do we bridge a skills gap at the front line and help people who have barriers to employment, whether they are you know, returning from reintegrating into society after going to prison, whether they are... Um, you know, a displaced worker from another industry, whether they've, you know, been a victim of domestic violence, whether they've been out of the workforce for a long time. How do you help people make sure that they have the skills that they need to be able to go into retail and be successful? And so it's a way that we're meeting both the needs of our members and the retailer industry, retail industry at large, but also trying to provide, you know, a service, a community service, and, and also empowerment, economic empowerment to loads of people in this country who just want somebody to be able to hire them. And and for a lot of people, I mean, shoot, I talked about my first job and all those doors that opened up for me many years ago. Retail does that for people all the time. And, and that is what Rise Up is intended to do. Credentialing program. So Rise Up is a credentialing program. And this is wonky, wonky space. Um, I was an English education major in college and I did not graduate with one for a reason. The education system is complicated, and I am learning more about that through Rise Up. It just, it's hard. It's really hard. The merging of e-commerce and technology. It's fascinating. I mean, you know, there's so much talk right now about the retail industry and the transformation it's going through, and 
the optimistic CEOs I talk to, which is most of them say, why wouldn't you want to come work in an industry like this right now? It is fascinating. It is changing so fast. Wouldn't you want to be at the front seat of something like that? Who, which, which young person today coming out of college wants to go, you know, work in the same job their dad did and do it the exact same way, right? You want to come into this industry that's like, whoa, we have no idea where the customer's going. But we're all going to go figure it out. Come on. That's fun. So when I think about e-commerce and technology, I think about a lot of the complex problems retailers are trying to solve now and who they need to help them get there. NRF philanthropy. Philanthropy is hugely important to the retail industry. We are, we represent an incredibly charitable part of the business community, and we're grateful for it. Uh, what we've been able to do over the last couple of years is unlock philanthropy for ourselves and create programs like Rise Up and our student program that help people actually come to work in retail, which is not only philanthropic, but also helps the industry that we represent at the same time. And it's been really fun to go from zero to 60 on that in the last few years. We had our gala here at the big show. It was our fifth anniversary. Uh, this year we raised over $3 million for our work, all due to the generous support of the retail community. And total since you've been here, how many millions have you raised? Uh, over 10. Incredible. Actually, now we're closer to 15. Incredible. So it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's gratifying. And, you know, programs like this that transform people's lives are really expensive. Um, you got a lot of you got a lot of layers that you got to work through to be able to help somebody who has barriers to employment find a job, and that's what we're trying to do. And it's an investment, and we're getting there, but there's a lot more to be done. Your vision for the future of retail and this entire big show. You know, it's interesting, um, boy. This big show it feels like it can't get any bigger, but every single year it does. I think this is my fifteenth or sixteenth. Just for those of you who can't visualize this, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people here. I mean, we're looking all around. There are people walking everywhere. <laughs> there are. Um, it's 40,000 almost of our closest friends and family from all over the world, which is also interesting. We've got 20% of these folks aren't from the U.S., um, you know, it's so hard to predict how the how the customer, you know, how will the customer change? How do companies need to change? How does the workforce need to change? It kind of trickles down that way. Um, certainly the world will be, the, the customer will continue to become more digitally savvy. It will be a lot easier to be a consumer. Price transparency and transparency and communication will continue, which is great news for a customer. Um and the industry needs to adapt. I mean, I suppose if there's anything constant in this business, it's going to be change because the retailers like Circuit City and others that waited too long to change became obsolete pretty quickly. Last three questions. Your proudest moment in this business. Mm. <laughs> uh, when we launched our, when we created our first gala five years ago and people actually showed up, we made over a million dollars that night when a whole bunch of people said we wouldn't be able to do it. And we said, no, we think we can. We've got this, we represent this industry that really gives back and believes in the workforce and we're going to try. And we tried and that, I remember that night sitting there being like, you know, it's like Sally Fields at the Oscars where you're like, oh my gosh, they really like me. Um, there's incredible validation in your work when you work really hard for something and you believe really strongly in it and, and it's supported, whether that's financially or in other ways, that has been my proudest moment. 
your biggest disappointment in this business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level? Um, I'm trying to, well, my biggest disappointment was my own fault. It was when we launched Rise Up two years ago, we kind of figured we'd create this beautiful, brilliant program and that, it, you know, we'd flick a switch and everybody would use it. <laughs> you don't do that with the store. You don't do that with the website. Like, what were we thinking? We had this tremendous confidence that we were doing everything right. And I remember somebody when we launched it saying, well, what's your business plan to roll this out? And we're like, well, that's not necessary, you know? Um, so that was kind of crummy. Um, so, you know, we've been focusing on, we focused on building it and now we're focused on talking about it and we're focused on getting more people to go through the program. Um, and we've had 50,000 people go through the program in two years, which is a lot of people, but there's a lot more people we can touch. So that was disappointing. I used that as an opportunity to make sure that the next time I create something that there's actually, you know, the day two story that comes after that and a plan to make it go. Last question. What advice do you have for the young child of a farmer? Mm growing up somewhere in this country or the world with aspirations of doing better than their parents and getting to the next level and having the kind of career that you're having. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't know that I'm doing better than my parents. I mean, financially, I'm sure doing better than my parents, but, um, quite frankly, going back to the farm keeps me grounded and I love it. But I have always had a little bit more wanderlust than others. I, I mean, my piece of advice would be imagine. I think imagination as a kid is so powerful and needs to be fostered. And surround yourself with people that help you think you can be whatever you wanted. I remember when I was in junior high and high school, I wanted to be somebody different every single day. One day I wanted to own a daycare. One day I wanted to be a cosmetologist. One day I wanted to be a real estate agent. My, my parents were always like, you would be so terrific at that. Right? I mean, they, they weren't like, well, you know, I mean, it's pragmatically, that's really not. So um, I was lucky in that regard where my parents never made me feel like there was not anything I couldn't be if I didn't want to. And that gave me a ton of confidence that you know, when I wanted to take some risks and put myself out there professionally, personally, that I'd have a pretty good chance of success. And quite frankly, that's worked out fairly well. But I think a lot of it was because of the encouragement that they gave me when I was a kid. Ellen, this has been really, really wonderful. I'm so honored you came by here and I've learned so much and I hope my audience has learned a lot about not only your business, but what it takes to be successful. Well, thank you. It's uh, a lot of luck and a lot of people that go into making this happen. So thank you for that. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. 
No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Rebecca Minkoff. I have two boys, 13 and 14, and in the extraordinary places you look that get noticed, it's about female empowerment. It's about that world. Why do you think there's nothing for boys' empowerment and young men looking to set a good example and fearlessness and getting up there as opposed to so much female empowerment? So I think that you guys have had the power, guys as in men, the, the power dynamic has been uh, in your court for the last 10,000 years. <laughs> and okay. I think for the pendulum to make an impact, you see this wide swing. And we don't say this, I say we, but like we don't say this with the exclusion of men. I think it had to shift really hard for people to take notice. But we know that men need to be at the table. And we know that uh, woke dads need to be at the table to teach their sons. I mean, we're nowhere without men as well. And it is a 50-50 world. So I think it's about you're seeing the pendulum in the last two years really swing. And then it'll settle back where we are making sure that these men have really great examples of women and men to be raised by. Jay Leno. Well, the first shirt I did uh, was an I Love New York shirt that I cut up and I bedazzled back when that was a thing. Uh, I hope it's never a thing again. Um, and I sent it to Jenna Elfman, who was on Dharma and Greg and is now on Fear the Walking Dead. And I sent it to her on September 9th, 2001. And obviously, the towers happened. Uh, she wore it on the 13th on Jay Leno and talked about the shirt and what it meant. And it was a terrible coincidence, but I decided to give, you know, all of a sudden I had um, hundreds, if not thousands of inquiries about this shirt. And I said, let me continue to make it and then do something good with it, positive, and give the proceeds to charity. So when I say I made that t-shirt for nine months, that is literally all I did. And uh, that sort of philosophy continues to that day where we do a lot of charitable giving with a lot of the shirts and items that we promote. M-A-B. <laughs> so I didn't actually ever set out to shorten the name of my bag. It was called the morning after bag because as a 26-year-old launching a company, I had fantasies that were not being realized. I wanted to stay out all night, meet the man of my dreams, and then do the walk of shame the next morning. So it was called the morning after bag. Um, and then my consumer shortened it to the M-A-B, just, you know, probably easier to type. Uh, and then... It just became a lot of my bags began to get shortened. But I launched my company at a time where I wanted to tap into these experiences that women have and not just name the bag after a woman. But the bag was for the walk of shame. It was for the walk of shame. Now, I don't understand. What is the bag going to symbolize <laughs> as you're walking home in an evening gown and bare feet holding your pumps? Well... This bag is big enough to hold your flats and your change of clothes. Oh. It was like a, a satchel that could like hold enough so that when you, you could go out, it was cool enough to go out, go out dancing, go out clubbing or whatever, but it stored your alternative morning walk. Disruption. I think that goes back to what I briefly mentioned, which is, you know, 
as scared as we were to, again, talk to our consumer, use social media, use technology in our interactive stores. I think those were all things that we aimed to just show our consumer and show the industry that you can use technology to ease a woman's pain points, um, not for gimmicky reasons, but just use it for the better to transform a dressing room experience, um, you know, and, and really start talking to her about how technology can evolve the shopping experience for the good. Ready to wear. That stands for clothing, um, meaning it's ready to wear. Back in the day, you know, couture and clothing was made to order. So ready to wear was this transformative thing that occurred probably in the in the 50s where like you were showing stuff that could be bought at a store versus I would like that and it'll arrive in six months. So ready to wear today is clothing that you can buy off the rack essentially. RM Superwomen. Probably two years ago, we started these fireside chats at, at our store where I could interview a woman who uh, has influenced many people and done incredible things. And while it was great that I could tell her story to 100 women in my store, I really wanted to be able to broadcast that a lot further. So like you, I launched a podcast. Um, we launched it in September and I get to interview women from all walks of life, whether it be an editor-in-chief to a a woman who organizes incredible conferences to a chef, to a mom, um, and really tell their stories. Your proudest moment in this business. Oh, come on. There's not just one. Um, I would say that when we opened our store, our first New York store in New York City on Green Street, that was a really proud moment. When we had our first runway show on the street, on Green Street, with probably 5,000 people in attendance, that was incredible. We had bloggers and, and, you know, our customer went nuts because it was someone that was far more real than, you know, a model who is size zero and six feet tall. Your biggest disappointment in this business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Um, I think, and I'm not going to name names. Uh, there's people that you start out with and you take a chance by working with, let's just say influencers and bloggers. And then they get bigger than you and they're paid a lot more by huge brands and you become like this, oh, maybe I'll get back to you never. And I just wish that people remembered and, and were a little bit more humble with their beginnings. What advice do you have for the young person who's growing up in a small town somewhere, has a dollar and a dream, has no money, but has a little bit of fear in them, but aspirations to be somebody special in this business, to figure out how to break in to this designer business, which now anything can happen and always does. But And how do they get to the point where they go through the trials and tribulations and have the amazing, extraordinary kind of career that you've had? So... I just want to say I moved here with nothing. I was essentially homeless. Um, you know, my mom bought the cheapest ticket, which flies you into Islip Airport, which I just want to say is about two hours outside of New York City. In Long Island. So moved here without a dollar, but definitely moved here with a dream. Lived with my cousin in her playroom in exchange for babysitting her daughter two nights a week. So I definitely know what it's like to not eat, um, to not know how I'm going to pay my rent, to have con ed teamsters wait outside your door to pay your electrical bill and they don't leave just to let you know if you don't pay your bill or they just shut you off. So I guess that was their nice, nice approach to wait outside. So I think that um, you have to be tenacious. You have to realize the power of your network. And if you don't have a network, find one person who's going to help you with that. 
And it is a series of six degrees of separation. And like I would write down my goals and I wouldn't cross that off until I did it. And I would break it down into tiny steps. Um, also, the beauty of technology is you don't have to move to New York City to be a designer today. You know, with technology, you can put up a website and start an Instagram and, you know, get everything made and go to sleep at night and have it almost everything be automated. So I think that, you know, be creative and don't necessarily think that you have to follow the rules that I followed um, to have a great career. I mean, you look at Jenna Kutcher, she's not a designer, but she lives in Duluth, Minnesota, you know, and she's got a million dollar business. And it's incredible to see people just doing that using relying on technology to help them. And young people today, I think, are used to Uber, Amazon, but success is not clickable. This is the one part of your life probably you can't click. You have to work your ass off and you have to work for years or tens of years to get to where you want to go and look at it as an investment and not just like, in six months, I'm going to be Instagram famous. And listen to my podcast too. I'm going to plug that. Uh, it's called Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff. You are an extraordinary woman. I am honored to meet you, and you are incredible, oh, and you're an inspiration. You. Thank, thank you, you so, much. so much. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, will Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Dave Gregory, September 26, 2017. The heading reads Career Boosting, five stars. And the comment is, this podcast is so incredible. I binge listen to your podcast and I learn so much about what I need to do for my career. It's literally transformed my career as a stand-up comedian. I just listened to your episode with Byron Allen before this podcast and I never heard of him, but it charged me to keep going with my career. I've learned patience and I hope that one day to be a guest on this podcast and get one of your famous introductions. Stay incredible, Barry. All right. Thank you so much, Dave Gregory. I really appreciate it. You are a winner. And that wraps up part two of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. 
normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Laura Cleary. It is the best time in the world to be a creator of any sort, really, and to grow your business in any field, really, as an artist especially. Oh my God, it's so powerful. You can have an idea, put it online, and if you're consistent and your idea is good enough, um, then, then you will be successful. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain It's never quite over, till it all feels the same You pick your own poison, dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.